The MarTech Podcast is a proud member of the I Hear Everything Podcast Network. Looking to launch or scale your podcast? I Hear Everything delivers podcast production, growth, and monetization solutions that transform your words into profit. Ready to give your brand a voice? Then visit IHearEverything.com. From advertising to software as a service to data. Across all of our programs and clients, we've seen a 55 to 65% open rate. Getting brands authentically integrated into content performs better than TV advertising. Typical lifespan of an article is about 24 to 36 hours. If we're reaching out to the right person with the right message and a clear call to action, then it's just a matter of timing. Welcome to the MarTech Podcast, a Ben J. Shap LLC production. In this podcast, you'll hear the stories of world-class marketers that use technology to drive business results and achieve career success. We'll unearth the real-world experiences of some of the brightest minds in the marketing and technology space so you can learn the tools, tips, and tricks they've learned along the way. Now here's the host of the MarTech Podcast, Benjamin Shapiro. Welcome back to the MarTech Podcast. Welcome to Career Day on the MarTech Podcast. Today, we're going to learn about the skills accumulated and the lessons learned from a great marketer throughout the various stops on his career. Joining us for Career Day is a fast mover in the entertainment content world. Patrick Moran is the global head of growth marketing at Spotify. Prior to his current role at Spotify, Patrick held in-house marketing roles at streaming content companies, including TiVo and Netflix. And he also had a stint in e-commerce at eBay and at a startup in the social networking space. Here is our interview with Patrick Moran from Spotify. Patrick, welcome to Career Day on the MarTech Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. It's good to be here. It's great to have you. It's been a long time since we worked together at our eBay days. And as I mentioned before we got started, I'm super excited to see that you are taking over the marketing world and landed such a great role at a company like Spotify. I don't know about taking over the world, but landed a great role, certainly. And it is interesting. It has been a long time. I keep thinking that eBay was actually not too long ago, but just thinking about it, it's practically like nine years ago. I know. It's a couple of gray hairs later, and, and here we are talking on the podcast. So let's go back to the beginning and talk about why did you get into marketing? Wow. Okay. So we're going to have to go really into the beginning. I graduated college in the Philippines back in late 90s. And back then, the place to be, or at least the career to have, was in marketing for what we call back then multinationals. So it was interesting to be able to communicate with massive amounts of users or massive amounts of consumers and be able to actually influence their purchase decisions. So I was at Unilever for a year and I was sort of like a brand marketing associate back then. And that's where I learned the basic marketing practices, segmentation, targeting, positioning, things of that nature. But that's how I got started marketing. It was certainly been a long path getting to where I am now, but that was essentially my base. So you mentioned that you grew up in the Philippines and you started after college in marketing and you went to Unilever. Walk me through going from the Philippines to making the connection at a company that's a CPG company like Unilever. How does that happen? So after undergrad, companies like Unilever, Procter & Gamble, a lot of these CPG companies, Colgate, Palmolive, and all these other ones tend to put up shop in university. And from there, they'll basically take undergrads and then they'll, for the most part, train them. 
So I basically had a running start. There were a lot of people, that, a lot of alums who were there back then who knew where I had come from and what I had done back in college. I spent the summer in advertising at J. Walter Thompson. I spent an intern, like another internship at Unilever. So it was a little bit of a running start. But at the same time, I think there was just hunger to move to the States for a few reasons, one professionally and one personally. And that was sort of the bigger jump and the beginnings of a not so smooth process. But I could probably relate back to a lot of the experiences which have sort of informed the way that I think about things today. So talk to me a little bit about what you learned at Unilever and how did that set the foundation for some of the other things that you've done in marketing in your career? It's pretty fascinating because I think the very basic practice back then was to try and get to understand consumer behavior as granularly as possible. And that would then inform all the messaging and targeting strategies and all the channel placements and things of that nature. Now, you move forward 20 years later, and those fundamentals are still exactly the same. It's just that the data is a lot richer. The channels are different. They're a lot more measurable. And the way that you would go about it is not that different. It's just everything around it has changed. So when I think about marketing in five or 10 years, I would imagine that it's not going to be that much different. We're still going to have to focus on user behavior, still going to have to focus on getting to understand them and sort of marrying first party data with data offline and things of that nature. And then using the channels that would exist later on to try and reach and speak with them. So the sophistication of targeting and all these other things get to be a lot richer, but at the very core of it, it's a relationship with your user. I think you bring up an interesting point. And the joke is that sales and marketing are the second oldest profession. And I won't go into a lot of details of what the oldest profession is, but the background of reaching people, understanding their behavior, understanding what their needs and desires are, and being able to present your product or service in a compelling way at the right place at the right time with the right frequency, that hasn't necessarily changed. The backbone of marketing has been the same at least since the Unilever you were just out of college days to now, sure, the implementation tactics are drastically different. But the underlying idea of how marketing works, even though maybe we call it growth now, is still fundamentally important for all marketers to understand. So let's talk about your early career. I see that you bounced around a little bit prior to going to school after Unilever. You have a couple brands like About.com and Yahoo on your resume. Talk to us about your early career. What were some of the skills that you developed? What were some of the interesting roles that you took on? So I moved to New York and I basically interviewed with every CPG company in New York and everybody sent another paper sort of reaction telling me that they were not going to interview me. But back then, outside of all of those options, the other options were the internet companies. So DoubleClick, Village, and About.com was one of them. And it was interesting because About.com basically needed somebody to come in and just review their ads. I reviewed ads to make sure that they followed the guidelines that we had. And this was for a product called Sprinks, which was About.com's pay-per-click model. This was pre-AdWords. And this was pretty much at the same time as over. So this was long ago. But that certainly got me introduced into the publisher side of internet marketing and how that all works. So I did that for about less than a year. But because I ran into so many sort of internal platform challenges and things of that nature, I had to work with the engineers a lot more often than anybody else would. And I just built a pretty significant relationship with them to the point where the person heading up the team was like, actually, you should just be a product manager. 
I didn't know what being a product manager meant, but I just kept doing what I was doing. I drew up what I thought the engineers should build for the review team. And they asked me questions and I provided them with answers and they built it and then we used it. And then we did the whole thing again. I was there for a few years until the dot-com bubble burst, then ended up doing IT consulting for about five years. But that was my first sort of foray into the digital world. So you started off with a, let's call it a traditional marketing background where you're working at a CPG company. You move to the States, you work at a digital marketing company, and you start a little bit of a career path change into product marketing. You work at product services. Tell me what's next after that. It was hard to get a job in an internet company in 2002. It was one of those things where I tried really hard to stay in the space just because I really liked it. I liked the nature of being able to find information on the internet, but it was tough. And I essentially ended up in a company called Edscastle. And what they did was they were basically providing IT infrastructure consulting services to hedge funds which is a complete departure from either of my two previous jobs. But at the same time, if there's one thing I learned during any recession, it's to basically take what to you and then make the most out of it. That's kind of what I did. An underrated part of career development is consistently paying the bills. And mostly when the economy is down, people have to get a little scrappy and they go out of their comfort zone. And I know I've done this. And you end up learning a tremendous amount by taking a role that isn't in the career path that you originally set out from. Sounds like that's something similar to what happened to you. So you did IT consulting for hedge fund firms. What was the big takeaway? What was the learning from that experience? Relationships matter more than anything else. And I did it for five years. I was basically working sort of internally with engineers and structure teams and things of that nature. But I was also working with hedge funds who didn't necessarily have a lot of patience or tolerance to systems failure. They were trading millions and millions of dollars worth of stock at any given point in time. So Millions of dollars worth of hedges. <laughs> yes. That's what hedge funds do, right? <laughs> I, I guess. It was a long time ago, so I don't know if I could describe it better than that. But yeah, building relationships, I think, basically means actually delivering on what you say you're going to deliver on. I have been screamed at times during that period of time from hedge funds, which is also one of the reasons why I left. But it was better to get yelled at for setting the right expectations than to be yelled at for setting the wrong ones. And it was always so much easier for me to fight for my engineers when the expectations that we set were the right ones. That's what I learned. It's a good learning. And it sounds like your intent was to be a marketer. That's where your career started. And because of the economic downturn, worked your way away from technology companies, but stayed involved in technology. But you were a full-on project manager, not necessarily in a marketing capacity. How did you work your way back into marketing? At that point, I was actually thinking that I might actually stay in that space just because I got along with everybody that I worked with. But I kind of wanted to go back. There was just this itch to go back to internet, either in product or marketing. That's when I decided to go back to school. So I didn't know any better. I didn't know how to get back into that space with the limited amount of experience that I had. All I did know was that a lot of people that I knew and a lot of friends that I knew go back to business school and then suddenly reinvent their careers. That's all I knew. So I figured, okay, well, maybe now it's time to go back to school. And like anything, not to sort of go back to my previous experiences, but I graduated college in the Philippines, like at the height of Southeast Asian economic crisis, graduated from Colombia from a two-year program that I had in the dot-com crisis. And 
lo and behold, I graduate from business school in 2009, in the middle of the housing crisis. So I'm probably never going to go back to school again, but that's what I did. I chose to go back to school to eventually, hopefully end up in the internet world. So I toyed with going back to getting my MBA and I was basically going to leave eBay when we worked together to go get a full-time MBA. And every school that I wanted to go to systematically rejected me because I didn't have the best GMAT scores. And eventually I worked my way into an executive program, but I was just about to launch my startup and my girlfriend at the time and I were getting serious. So I didn't want to leave. And I decided to go and start a startup instead of going to an MBA. I do have a handful of friends who have gone back and got their postgraduate degrees. And some of them have mixed emotions about it. The people that were going for a break to get an education, to take some time away to reflect and look for a career change, enjoyed the experience of going to school and came out and were able to head a different path, right? It's a nice way to hit a restart on your career and course correct. I have friends who went and went just purely for the network and thinking that going to get an MBA would increase the likelihood of them getting a new title and going back into the same industry. And they seem to be a little bit upset about the experience. And I'm generalizing. I'm sure some people stay in the same field, go back and do very well. It seems like you were a career pivoter going to get your postgraduate education. That's my first comment. And my second one is... Can you let us all know if you're thinking about going back to school so we can sell all of our stocks and just put money under the mattress? <laughs> so on the first point, that's correct. I was looking to sort of pivot careers and hopefully end up in business school and get to see just a prodigious amount of job opportunities ahead of me and be able to pick and choose. To the second point, yes, I will definitely let you know if and when I intend to go back to school. The interesting part is that I have been taking these programs on Reforge. But the thing is, it's online education. So I don't know if that necessarily counts. But given the way that the market has been acting up over the last few weeks... Okay, <laughs> hang on. Twitter, sell, Netflix, sell... <laughs> okay, sorry. <clears throat> Go ahead. So yeah, that's kind of been the pattern of my life. At least we know. <laughs> So the economy isn't doing well. You go to business school, you come out, and you're ready to reemerge as a marketer back sort of in the original space where your career started. Where do you land? How does your career develop from there? So I ended up doing just a consulting gig at this media analytics company called Fliptop, which was eventually sold to LinkedIn. That was a great experience for me because I got to truly experience the startup world driven by somebody who was really sort of familiar with the space. But more than anything else, I think just to go back to the business school situation, so nobody would interview me. I thought coming into business school that suddenly I had this name on my resume and suddenly people would want to speak with me. And that was not the case at all. But every interview I got, which was a fairly decent amount between 2009 and 2010, was a direct result of people from Michigan helping me out. Basically, I would find jobs, reach out to them on LinkedIn, and 99% of them would speak with me. That was one of the bigger values that I was able to get out of business school. So ever since then, to the extent that I can, always try to just pay it forward and speak with the Michigan folks who reach out. But that was one of the benefits of that, where there's this level of camaraderie that I had never experienced in my life. I totally hear you. I think that's one of the beauties of going to business school is the built-in network, right? And mostly it's the reason why people that go and get a secondary education are able to move on to a career pivot like you did is that 
Now they have this break and a logical story to say, I went back to school to learn the area of industry that I want to go into. And there's a built-in network to help you develop the contacts that you need to execute the job search that you're trying to achieve or execute the job search for the role that you're trying to achieve. So you left business school and you went into a startup. You basically had a cup of coffee in a company that got sold to LinkedIn. And eventually you worked your way over to eBay. Tell me about the transition to eBay and what did you do while we were working together? Interestingly enough, the two people who actually helped me out to get into eBay were also alums. So that definitely worked out. But the interesting part is that I was hired to do product work for a service that eBay had developed where we would white label our paid search services to other e-commerce companies. And just looking back, it made so much sense. I guess the closest thing I could think of is like Amazon Cloud, just renting out their, their service space, where eBay would rent out their intelligence in paid search simply because they were so much more sophisticated than a lot of other companies out there. And in return, eBay would then get significantly more data coming in from other companies. That was really interesting to me. And the team that they had built out to run that project was a pretty strong team. Day three, that entire project got scrapped. (laughs) For those of you who are listening, if this story sounds familiar, one of Patrick and my peers at eBay, Will Wong, who is the VP of marketing for Disney streaming services, he was on this podcast a few months ago, told a similar story, how eBay was selling their advertising story as what was the tool? It wasn't Triton. It started with a P, I forget. Some other god of the sea or something along those lines. (laughs) But basically, this is the second time that the eBay deciding to go away from selling advertising services story has come up on the podcast. So you go and you're there early on and all of a sudden the rug is pulled out from under you and now you're at eBay. Where do you land and what do you do? So obviously that doesn't work out. But fortunately, I ended up in a team where we basically ran, I mean, quote unquote, strategic services for internet marketing as a whole. And what that meant was that eBay's internet marketing team, as you would definitely know, is at that time broken out into various channels. And I think at that point, the various channels were spending or optimizing against its own set of metrics. And we had a new leader of internet marketing come in who sort of wanted to drive a lot more consolidation. And underneath that level of consolidation was this thought process to think about how we would begin to sort of bring things together. So what does that mean? means multi-touch attribution, means how do we measure incrementality at scale across channels globally, means, okay, well, what do we build and buy relative to what our sort of optimization levers were? So selfishly enough for me, it was really more of an extended business school. And the reason why I say selfishly enough is because I don't know how much I contributed to the impact of that team. That team, I think, did provide a level of impact, but the amount that I learned at that time definitely set up the foundation for everything I do, especially within the performance world. But we did that for about a year, a year and a half, and I really loved working with that team. I mean, that team was a group of really smart people led by a person who just knew how to strategically look at the space. And I learned a lot about the thought process on how to go about it. And the other thing too was that I got to work directly with a lot of these channel leaders like yourself and person leading paid search, person leading up SEO, person leading up display advertising. And our paid search capabilities were by far one of the most sophisticated paid search capabilities that I had ever seen. And the reason why I can say that with some level of confidence is because one of the projects that we were working on 
was to actually go and speak with 20 to 30 other companies in the US and in Europe about their digital marketing capabilities. I mean, we spoke to them about attribution, creative development, production, whether they're taking things in-house, whether they're buying things externally, what is their window of conversion and things of that nature. And in aggregate, we basically saw a lot of patterns and made things a lot more definitive where at some point it feels like when you're internal that the problems are things that are only happening to you. But when in reality, it's pretty all common. So we did that for a fair amount of time and I truly enjoyed it. One of the companies that we spoke with was Netflix and they were about two and a half, three miles south of eBay. So it wasn't too far of a drive. And within that process, Netflix kind of reached out and they're like, hey, you guys are doing good stuff at eBay. We're planning on doing some stuff at Netflix. Do you want to talk to us? And that's how the conversations with Netflix got started. So that ends up being the next stop in your career. Were those conversations related to you moving over to Netflix? Is it coincidence or did you just start building your network within the organization and then an opportunity came up and you moved on? It was more the latter because I think by the time that the eBay situation had passed, I think there was organizational shifting. The majority of the team was moving up north to Seattle. So it was really opportune, at least for me, because that's when sort of Netflix reached out as well. It was a little bit interesting because we had wanted to go to Netflix back then. It was seven months after Quickster, where they split up the DVD service and streaming service. And I think Netflix lost two-thirds of its market value over the course of a few months. Great time to buy the stock. Also, <laughs> yeah. a time when you were not in school. Yeah. I always end up in these situations. I really don't know why. But they gave me a pretty significant responsibility. They said, look, come in. You'll get to manage the entire budget of the US. And we want you to figure out all of these things that you were able to try and figure out over at eBay because we are going to launch something pretty massive in 2013 or the year after. They didn't provide me with any details of what that was. I mean, obviously, in hindsight, it was basically the originals. And they really wanted that type of thinking because they were a lot of smart people. I think the challenge over Netflix back then was that you had a lot of people who had been there for a while. They wanted just not necessarily another smart person, I think they just wanted newer ideas to come in more than anything else to try and tackle this new challenge that they were going to have. So I joined right then. I felt like, okay, if this doesn't work out, if Netflix gets sold, I had this opportunity. I made the most out of it. And Silicon Valley is just there. At that time, it's DVDs in the mail primarily. And there's a companion product that you can watch some content online. Yeah. I didn't really even use the DVD by mail. I was just like, wow, this is a nice thing for the future watching TV over the internet through my, this thing called Apple TV. Like, okay, I'll buy it. But yeah, that was my perspective in 2012. So you made the departure from working in e-commerce. And I understand how you learned a little bit about Netflix and how Netflix learned a little about eBay and about you. But this is your first foray into marketing a content business. How is it different marketing physical products in eBay where you're working in e-commerce to going into content consumption. A special thanks to our presenting sponsor, Mutinex. Ready to take your team from I think to I know? Then join brands like Samsung, ING, and Asahi who make better marketing decisions with Mutinex. Mutinex Growth OX, the marketing mixed modeling platform that makes measuring ROI fast, easy, and cost-effective. Request a demo at mutinex.co. That's M-U-T-I-N-E-X dot co. Time for a one-minute break to hear from our presenting sponsor, 
Mutinex. In 1919, John Wanamaker said, half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. I just don't know which half. Well, the advertising landscape has changed since then, and instead of reaching your audience on two channels, you're probably reaching them on 20. Turns out John didn't know how easy he had it. But that doesn't mean that you should give up on striving towards marketing effectiveness. No matter how complex your marketing strategy is, Mutinex Growth OX is the market mix modeling platform that measures the impact of marketing on your bottom line. Mutinex's market mix modeling platform calibrates your insights against the latest market conditions so you can make media and marketing investment decisions confidently and quickly. Ready to take your team from I think to I know? Then join brands like Samsung, ING, and Asahi who make better marketing decisions with Mutinex. Mutinex Growth OX, your best decision starts here. To learn more about Mutinex, go to mutinex.co. That's M-U-T-I-N-E-X dot co. Okay, here's the rest of today's interview. They're drastically different products, and that's more in line with what you're doing today. Talk to me a little bit about the strategy at Netflix, and what did you learn from working there? The approach for marketing content and for marketing subscription is more personal than anything, so I don't want to necessarily get any people getting it riled up, but it's actually a lot less sophisticated than marketing e-commerce. And I'm only specifically talking about the performance side of things. The brand side of things is completely different altogether. Because on the performance side of things at eBay, you're looking to validate lifetime value. Meaning that if a person buys a car on eBay, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to buy anything else after that. So there's constant validation of what true lifetime value is. Whereas at Netflix, it follows a traditional growth curve where if you are able to bring a user into the service and you are able to ensure that that user gets past a certain set of activities, that they will subscribe. And your retention rates are fairly constant at that point. So you're not trying to market against so many different variables. You're basically just trying to market to get users to the service and then eventually get them consume content so that they build sort of habitual behavior. And that's fairly similar with Spotify, but that's what made it a little bit more palpable for me was that I wasn't trying to recreate eBay's full funnel because that was really sophisticated. But at the same time, all of these things like incrementality, what channels should we use? What channels should we test in? How do we do production? What messages should we have? Like all of those things were still really important. And I was like, okay, well, I had a fair idea of a starting point. And at Netflix, they will allow you to really test things out. They have the patience to be like, so long as you seem like you know what you're doing or you have the confidence to try to truly see this through, they'll give you that opportunity. And I really appreciated that. So that was my first few months at Netflix. The marketing team completely changed while I was there. So that was another challenge. But more than anything, if I learned performance at eBay, I learned brand at Netflix. Talk to me a little bit about what you mean by I learned brand. What did you learn specifically? I think one of the things working very performance-driven shop is this notion that anything spent outside of performance is not intelligent dollars and that you're just throwing those dollars away. And the thing is, there is some level of truth to that, but not everything that is important can be tracked. And just because it can't be tracked or measured, it doesn't mean that it's not intelligent dollars. 
I learned that mostly at Netflix when we had a new CMO and he comes mostly from a brand background and Netflix was a very DR-driven shop and very quantitative company. But it was really fascinating how Reed Hastings and Kelly Bennett sort of developed a little bit of a give and take where they're like, okay, in order for Netflix to be seen as an entertainment company and not just this Silicon Valley company that streams content on TV, but as an actual entertainment company that can be comparable to HBO, we need marketing to back that up. And we might not be able to measure it, but so long as we're directionally going there, we'll be fine given the amount of, con- the amount of investment we're making in content, the investment we're making product. So that's kind of how I learned the value of that. And all of these things that I learned at eBay about, okay, well, if you can't measure it this way, or if you can't derive incrementality this way, then it doesn't work. At Netflix, we proved that it worked. We proved two things. One, that we eventually could drive culture. And two, that we can change perception through marketing. And I've never had any other experience like that where I got to see that world. That was interesting stuff. The thing that sticks out to me is that you're talking about the direct response marketers view that anything that can't directly be attributed to positive ROI is not intelligent dollars. And I do think that there is the conflict between direct response marketers and brand marketers where just because something is not a sophisticated channel attribution, not a sophistication ROI attribution channel does not mean it is not an intelligent investment podcast advertising specifically for this show, the way that podcasts work is I can't actually attribute what is driving the downloads for each podcast because downloads are held in a walled garden called iTunes. It doesn't mean that the channels that I'm testing are not a good investment because I can't track that it works. I know I put money in and the podcast grows. And the same thing with Netflix is there is a reason to build a definitive brand. And when you and I talk about our experiences in eBay as direct response marketers, the underlying thing that people in our class at eBay forget about is that when Meg Whitman, the CEO of eBay, came in in the early days, she was focused on building the brand, 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 brand. And once the brand had been established as a marketplace leader, then the internet marketing team turned into a direct response engine, but it was built on the foundation of brand leadership. So it's interesting to hear your perspective, having gone from being at eBay during a direct response focused time to being at Netflix as they're developing that brand. Eventually, you moved on from Netflix and you sort of stayed in the content realm. You went on to TiVo. Tell me about your reason for moving along and what did you do at TiVo? So at some point over Netflix, they had already kind of built out what they needed to build out for that phase. And slowly but surely, I kind of wanted a little bit more of a balance between performance and brand. So you're kind of marketable at that point, quote unquote, and sort of TiVo came in. And I think the story around TiVo at the time was not that different from the story at Netflix. The story at TiVo at the time was, here's a brand that is kind of struggling and it needed sort of an injection of something new to eventually revive it, which was not any different from the Netflix situation that I walked into pre-originals. So I think that was sort of the allure. But like anything, you take a couple of risks, you take a couple of bets, some of them work out, some of them don't. And I think this is one of those situations where it maybe didn't pan out the way that I would have wanted it to pan out. And I kind of just learned and realized that there's a lot of things that are basically outside of marketing that you can't control. And it was a little bit of an older company, I think, to some extent. 
the CEO was probably a little bit more focused on the B2B side. The company eventually got sold, but I did learn incrementally a little bit more about brand work and kind of building a team. But for the most part, I think the big lesson that I learned over TiVo was to look a little bit more holistically outside of the marketing, to look a little bit more organizationally and to see, okay, well, is this a long-term play? And what makes it or does not make it a long-term play? And that lasts for about a year. So what's interesting to me is you stayed on from eBay to Netflix to TiVo. Those are all extremely large to well-established, somewhat mature companies, at least in Silicon Valley terms. They're not Procter & Gamble, but Netflix had been around for a couple of years. TiVo was one of the early innovators in technology-driven content. And then you moved on to Yik Yak, which was a social networking company that was an early, early stage startup. Why did you decide to make the jump to an earlier stage company? Yeah, I figured anybody in Silicon Valley, I guess, would be able to talk about the allure of the startup. And I think that was kind of that time in my career. And I still would eventually at some point want to work for more of like a pre-IPO company, but that was who they are. They were a social media startup. They had picked up a significant amount of active users over the last two years that they had existed. The founders were fairly young and looking for leaders who were slightly more tenured. The leadership team at Yik Yak, I felt was really strong and I've got a ton of respect for them. And they were backed by big name VCs, right? I mean, Sequoia backed them. The person who brokered the WhatsApp Facebook deal was part of the board. These backed them. So it's like, yeah, okay, well, this seems like an interesting venture, just like Netflix and TiVo. Let's take a chance. Let's see what happens here. And that's how I got into it. But I really enjoyed meeting the group of people. And I still am in touch with a lot of them now. But the team was great. Tell me about what the company does and what was your role and what was the strategy to market it? Yik Yak was an anonymous social media company that was geofenced at the university level. So if you can imagine a Twitter that is geofenced, that's anonymous and specifically focused on universities, that's what Yik Yak. The level of content and the level of just activity that that type of application from was pretty significant. Now, it certainly didn't come without its controversies with content on the app, but what a lot of people don't realize who know the Yik Yak story was that the community self-regulated themselves. You could basically vote out content. So that's Yik Yak. They got to a fairly significant sort of active user base in the US, UK, Australia. But the reason why they brought me in was because they were spending a fair amount of money relative to the investments that they had on promoting Yik Yak. So they wanted somebody to come in and try to figure out how to manage their money. The irony in that situation was that there's no LTV. We're not driving any advertising dollars, not a subscription. It's just a free app. So at some point, the argument that we were making was that we shouldn't spend any money. And that's where I learned growth. So if I learned performance at eBay, I learned brand at Netflix, I learned growth at Yik Yak. And basically growth defined as how do we grow our base organically through some level of product market fit and through some level of engagement that the users are having on service. Seems like this is a great place for you to combine your product marketing skills from the pre-MBA part of your career with the marketing lessons that you've learned in the post-MBA. And that's really how do you build and modify your product to generate virality. And with a social network, that's obviously something that's key to making sure that the service works, mostly when you're pre-revenue. Yeah, that's pretty accurate. The thing here was that There's only 70 of us in the company, right? There wasn't a divide between product and marketing. 
it was basically one company that allowed the fluidity of discussions to happen between all the different teams, whether it was engineering, product, PR, which you wouldn't necessarily get at a larger company unless you were at sort of the leads level. But that's kind of what it afforded. And we were like, okay, well, what's the difference between product and growth? Let's do it this way. Like the product team will figure out the longer term vision and what users need experience for growth. We will truly figure out and just an optimization. So how do we get users to do more? How do we get users to experience more? Do we send them push notifications? Do we work on the onboarding process? Things of that nature. So we had a strong analytics person who I kind of worked with fairly closely to truly figure out a lot of these things, which interestingly enough, we figured out a lot of these things that I eventually found out on YouTube through watching people like Brian Balfour and Andrew Chen and Casey Winters. And I'm like, actually, you know what? What we're doing is kind of right. And that was maybe 40% of the time. The 60% is actually, you know what? We could probably do it better. I think we're doing it wrong. That's kind of how I learned that side of the business. Interesting. So eventually, Yik Yak being like what happens to most startups, but starts to go the way of the dodo bird. (laughs) And it's time for you to go find a new role. And somehow you manage to go back into a relatively large company and you land at Spotify in New York as the global head of growth marketing. So talk to me about what the challenges are for Spotify. Talk to me about how you define your role and what are the things that you're working on today? So moving over to Spotify was interesting because it was basically the first time in my career where I'm not trying to feel my way to things that I don't really know that much about. So it just basically came to this perfect combination of performance marketing at eBay, brand marketing at Netflix, and then being able to understand growth and monthly active users and how that moves over the IKEA. So it just it was just one of those precipitous or really sort of ideal situations where I walked in and I'm like, okay. The challenge was organizational, I think, for the most part. As any company that is going from kind of startup to post-IPO, there's just a lot of movement. The culture changes a little bit, people move around. And I think that's kind of what I've had to work around. But right now, I work very closely with our media teams and our CRM teams and Ultimately, we're trying to figure out how to build a persistent type of marketing that will scale globally, that ultimately drives consumption and engagement. And I know that's a little bit sort of nebulous, but what I can say is that it has been really fascinating working with all of these teams, whether it's the content team, media team, or product team, and things of that nature, and actually being able to provide a holistic story across all of the teams. And I think that's what I've enjoyed the most, being able to sort of tell or at least provide a holistic perspective, given everything that everybody else is doing. So that's been great. And I'm now part of the product organization. So I'm part of the growth product organization. So the level of support and capabilities that that affords me is much more significant than any other experiences that I've had. And the international nature of my work as well has been truly fascinating because that's where you really start to appreciate the differences in market dynamics, whether it's in South America, Asia. So I've been here for a year and a half now, and I hope to be here for a long time more. Interesting. So looking back on your career, you started the sort of marketing foundation early on in your career, and you got some product experience as you started to work into technology. You went back to get your MBA to pivot into a marketing and technology role where you worked at eBay, you learned your direct response chops, moved to Netflix where you learned about branding, went into a startup where you're learning about the mixture of product and marketing and getting into growth. And that really 
is what you're focused on now at Spotify. As you look back on your experiences, tell me what advice you have for younger marketers. What are the things that you think they need to think about as they are starting to develop their careers and they're interested in working into a growth role like you have at Spotify? I guess my immediate response would be one that's a little bit more macro and one that's a little bit more specific to marketers. I guess the macro perspective that I have is that the bad times don't last forever, nor do the good times. You learn to appreciate the good times really well. And if there's one thing I learned is to be truly humble during the good times and to continue to build relationships and to continue to build trust and then to persevere during the bad times. I think just the macro sort of situation, right? I mean, having gone through all of these crises and bad times in companies and good times in companies and things like that, I think that's the first one. The second one, so far as like marketing is concerned, is I guess a combination of two things. One, everybody talks about growing their user base and going to like so many different areas and doing all of these things and doing all of these hacks and all this other stuff. But the goldmine of information is basically your existing users. If you fundamentally understand why your users are using whatever it is that you're selling, nobody else has that data. And I think people take that for granted. And the second thing is, which resonated for me from Brian Balfour, for young marketers, was to think of your career like a T. And that's how I've sort of worked my way up. And by that, what I mean is go be an expert in one thing and understand that one thing better than anybody else. And I kind of say like digital marketing, but for me, it was like display advertising, to be honest. But understand that one thing really well, and then use that to leverage your understanding into a fuller breadth of things. A lot of people that come to me, like a lot of younger folks, like, should I get into growth and full-fledged growth and like all of it? And I'm like, no, focus on one thing really well. Focus on the, how does this thing work? And the dynamics of that thing will teach you how to deal with the dynamics of the next thing. Those would be, I guess, the three things that I would say as an old person. Well, I think that's great advice, and I appreciate you telling us your story and joining us today for Career Day on the MarTech Podcast. So that wraps up this episode of the show. Thanks to Patrick Moran from Spotify for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Patrick, you can click on the link in our show notes to his bio, or you can find him on LinkedIn at PC Moran, M-O-R-A-N. If you didn't have time to take notes while you were listening to this podcast, don't worry about it. We've got a summary and a full transcript of this episode on our website, which you can find through the link in our show notes or by going to martechpod.com. If you're a subscriber to the MarTech Podcast, we want to thank you for being a member of our community. If you ever have questions, comments, if you're interested in reaching one of the guests on our show, we created a page just for you. It's benjshap.com slash question where you can contact us, leave a question, and if you ask a good one, we might just answer it on the MarTech Podcast. You can also reach out to us on our social channels. You can reach find us on LinkedIn or Twitter by searching benjshap, B-E-N-J-S-H-A-P. If you haven't subscribed yet and you want a weekly stream of marketing and technology knowledge in your podcast feed, we've got a bunch of great episodes lined up in the next few weeks. So hit the subscribe button in your podcast app and we'll be back in your feed next week. Okay, that's it for today. Thanks to Patrick for joining us. And until next time, my advice is to just focus on keeping your customers happy.
Thanks for listening to the MarTech Podcast, an I Hear Everything production. Looking to launch or scale a podcast like this one for your brand? Then visit IHearEverything.com.